I want to say to you um, that in a way that is completely fitting for a sermon about risk, I expect and anticipate that these words might stir up all kinds of um, feelings among us as a body. And so I want to make sure that everyone understands that um, following worship, we at the Grove have what we like to call the second hour. Um, I know worship is more than an hour. I've heard the jokes. But if you want more, <laughs> we have a second hour. We gather in different ways, um, things for children, uh, youth. We have spaces for individual prayer. And we often have a gathering um, for non-kids, adults. Um, and so we're going to have a sermon talk back today downstairs. Um, and I just want to encourage you um, that that if this stirs up lots of um, deep feelings in you, and if you feel comfortable um, to bring them to that sermon talk back, and we will listen in love to one another and hold space for that. Um, so hear these words of sacred scripture from the 21st chapter of the Gospel of Matthew. Jesus entered the temple courts and drove out all who were buying and selling there. He overturned the tables of the money changers and the benches of those selling doves. It is written, he said to them, my house will be called a house of prayer, but you are making it a den of robbers. The blind and the lame came to him at the temple, and he healed them. But when the chief priests and the teachers of the law saw the wonderful things he did, and the children shouting in the temple courts, Hosanna to the son of David, they were indignant. Do you hear what these children are saying? They asked him. Yes, replied Jesus. Have you never read from the lips of children and infants? You, Lord, have called forth your praise. And he left them and went out of the city to Bethany, where he spent the night. Will you pray with me? Holy and loving God, we strive for the wisdoms to become fools for Christ. And God, we offer up to you in this moment all our contemplation, all our human wisdom, all our understanding, all of our reverence, all of our religion, everything that makes us feel comfortable and in control. God, we offer it all up on the altar of the Lord Jesus Christ. And God, we are foolish enough by your grace to play, to pray. Have your way in us, Lord. Make us who are no people your people so that you might glorify your name in our house. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So this moment in the Gospel of Matthew, it is the beginning of the glorious end for Jesus. And that means it's really the beginning of the long-awaited beginning. 
Jesus enters into Jerusalem and to have the holy confrontation with all the powers and principalities that are about to be overturned by his resurrection. And Jesus rides into the holy city on a donkey. And that donkey is a big deal to us here at the Grove. We follow our Lord who came in on a donkey, humble and ready to serve. We do not follow leaders on war horses or leaders in gilded chariots, but that's another sermon. <laughs> but Jesus comes into the holy city and he rides in on a donkey and he comes in to pick a sacred fight and he heads straight to the temple he doesn't go to the palace of Herod he doesn't go to any of the government offices of the empire and we assume especially we people of faith we assume that the power we need and the powers we fight and everything we have to resist is in the powers of the military or the or the political system that that's where the real danger and the real power we need to take back is but Jesus goes straight to the temple because Jesus is showing us that power and new life that we seek is in God not in human institutions and Jesus' first order of business, his first priority, his first fight is not with his enemies, it's with his own. Jesus heads straight to the temple, and don't get it twisted, he is going there to worship, he is going there to pray. And here's what his faithfulness looks like on that day, a riot. Jesus starts a riot. He has no permit. He has nobody's permission. He is not only the son of God and the king of kings, he is also the high priest of heaven out of the order of Melchizedek. Look it up. And so he is entering into what is his own. And when he gets there, he starts busting things up. And he drives out all of those who are buying and selling. All of the religious entrepreneurs and all of the religious consumers, he runs them out, which is a sobering thought that Jesus would run anybody out. And then he starts turning over tables and busting up benches. All the paraphernalia of the marketplace he destroys because churches don't need cash registers. We don't buy and sell things in the house of the Lord. And Matthew particularly wants us to know that Jesus smashed the benches of the dove sellers, and that was a religious business aimed at the very poor, those who could not afford to bring the mandated sacrifice of a sheep, the most costly sacrifice, the people who could least afford to pay to worship. A system had sprung up to wring out their few coins, so if you couldn't afford a sheep, they'd sell you a dove. And Jesus is clear even though custom and tradition have made space for it, the house of God is a non-commercial enterprise. Worship of God is non-transactional. And let's not make it easy on ourselves. There's no suggestion in this gospel that the merchants are cheats. We assume that because Jesus says the house of the Lord has become a den of robbers, we assume that they were cheating or thieving from the people, but they probably aren't stealing in a using dishonest scales kind of way. No, what Jesus disrupts is a practical, well-regulated enterprise that is supervised 
by the priests and the scribes. And it has been designed for expediency and convenience of the religious customer. It is easier to buy what you want to sacrifice to the Lord in the courts than to carry a live animal through the streets of Jerusalem. And it's unseemly to put coins marked with Caesar's likeness in the temple treasury. So the money changers are just providing a necessary service. What we find here in the temple that Jesus so abhors is capitalism. And Jesus says it doesn't belong here and it has to go now. Because the economy of God is different from any of the economies of the world. And because worshiping God, in fact, is not easy or convenient. And because the house of the Lord runs on hospitality and radical welcome and generosity, not on fees or mandatory offerings. Church, I need you to understand that no one gathered in the temple that day had the capacity to even imagine that there was any problem with the status quo. People could not even fathom things running any other way. People, things were running the only way people could imagine them running. Lots of good and reasonable ideas were behind the setup that Jesus broke down. Nobody woke up one morning and said, I know, I'm going to use my power and position to design a system that will exploit the vulnerable and desecrate the temple. Just like us, they did not mean to exclude or harm anyone. They did not mean to exploit anyone. They were running the temple the best way they knew how. They were just trying to keep the lights on. And Jesus bypassed the commercial traders in the city center. He bypassed the tax collector's offices who were bleeding the people dry. He bypassed the corrupt courts and the auction blocks on which they sold enslaved humans. And he rode his prophetic donkey first to the temple because new life transformation and the kingdom starts here and now get the commerce out of my house. And when Jesus did this, he broke the law. It was an act of civil disobedience. Jesus did some holy destruction. Now let's keep it straight. There's no violence against any human in this text. There is no justification for holy violence here because there is no such thing as holy violence. There is no blood shed by anyone, but there is holy demolition. There is a holy riot started by Jesus and Jesus definitely willingly, gladly and wholeheartedly paid the price for what he did. And he did it not for his own sake, but for the sake of the vulnerable. And I need us to notice right away that the space that Jesus cleared did not stay empty even for a second. Jesus smashed away the former things and then before the chaos could even be cleared away, coming over the splinters and the shards and the feathers while the released doves and pigeons are still cooing in the rafters, in come the blind and the lame. And they enter into that wide open space and they come to Jesus and he heals them. 
And then the children come in and start dancing and running and shouting, Hosanna to the son of David. Praise flows in from the city streets into the sacred center. Praise for the new thing that God was doing, which was restoring the temple for the power of God, not the power of religious leaders. In the empty space, in the cleared space, in the chaotic space, in the absence of what was reasonable and familiar and necessary, new creation of God bursts forth. And the temple is centered on healing and praise and the weak and the powerless and the vulnerable who used to be on the edges come right to the sacred center and find new life. And those who had been at the center, the buyers and the sellers and the regulating authorities, they were driven out to the edges and this is how the kingdom comes. And of course, of course, those who were driven out would be welcomed back in. Those buyers and sellers and priests and regulators and scribes, they are welcome to join the party in the empty space at the center and dance with the children and praise Jesus and celebrate the healing and the wholeness that he brings. They can come back to God like all of us come back to God in weakness and humility, setting aside the former way and the former understanding and centering our wounds, seeking healing, ready to pray what God is doing for us, not what we are doing for God. Those who are driven out can come back in and join in the new life and in the new ways, but you cannot bring the old ways back in with you. All are welcome. All are welcome to join in the way of Jesus, but it must be the way of Jesus. And the way of Jesus is radical and I mean that literally radical, back to the root, back to the heart, back to the very beginning of the way we were given life to be shared with God and each other in the garden, a life based on the goodness of God, a life whose foundation is in the wisdom of trusting God, trusting God when we know God's abundance and also trusting God when God gives us sacred limits. We can't build our life with God on the systems of this world not on the systems of violence or exclusion, not even on the systems of buying and selling and expediency. Those are the only things our culture understands and that shapes our thinking. It's all we can conceive as possible, just a more holy version of what is happening in the world. But we were given the Holy Spirit so that we can renew our minds in Christ and see that another way, an impossible way, is possible with God. Church, I need you to plant this story like a seed in your heart. And when you read it, I need you to understand that there are holy moments when Jesus disrupts the order to establish shalom peace. There are times when Jesus disrupts order, riots even, to break down what is to bring wholeness and new life. Is there time for violence? Never. There is never a time to snuff out the sacred breath of God in someone else's body. Is there a time for violence? Never. Is there a time for destruction? Sometimes. Because sometimes in our spiritual blindness, the things we prize most deeply as sacred are actually chains that are binding us down and Jesus comes to bust us out. So one of our core values at the Grove is risk. And I hope after sitting with this sacred story, I hope you can see why. 
I hope you can see why Jesus walked into the temple and redeemed it and restored it. And that was a risk. He risked disapproval. He risked rejection. He risked being misunderstood. He risked looking like he was unfaithful in an act of extreme faithfulness. Jesus took risks. Jesus was not reckless. Jesus' risks were deliberate and they testified to the truth. And as he turned over the tables, he told them why. You have made the temple one thing, a den of robbers, but it should be another. My house will be a house of prayer for all people. And when the ones who benefit from and profit from the status quo demand an explanation, when they say to him, who do you think you are? Do you hear what they're saying about you? When they say that to him after he has opened the eyes of the blind and restored strength to the disabled, when they are indignant at the sight of healing and transformation in the temple, pay attention. They're indignant at the idea that people can be restored to wholeness because that's not what the temple is for in their eyes. When they demand an explanation and demand to know by whose authority, Jesus says, have you never read Psalm 8, as it happens, from the lips of children and infants, you have ordained praise. Those who have not yet been educated to know better, those who have become maladjusted to the destruction of our culture, those who know, know the purity of the heart of God, they can see and gasp in delight at the power of God making people new. Jesus takes risks and he starts taking them in his own house. And they are risks of righteousness based in his knowledge that God is who God says God is. And God will keep God's promises and God is faithful. And Jesus doesn't expect those who profit and benefit from the way things are to welcome in the inbreaking of the kingdom of God, which is holy and new. He does not expect those who are satisfied with the status quo to rejoice in the way things will be. When the kingdom of God comes, it always brings life and wholeness to the people on the edges. And it always brings the outsiders in. And it always disrupts the comfort and control of those who are at the center of the status quo. Jesus is not doing something that is reasonable in the eyes of the world that is. Along with every prophet and along with everything else, Jesus, he is, he is a prophet. Along with all prophets, Jesus doesn't just talk about it. He doesn't just say they shouldn't be buying and selling here. He acts on that truth and turns out of the tables. He doesn't just say in the word of God, there is healing. He heals people and he expects and is not offended when people don't understand. When they ask him, he has an answer. He doesn't expect people to know what it is his calling to reveal. So he risks what is because he trusts what will be. And honestly, church, I need you to understand that his riot doesn't work. If by work, you mean that the system is instantly and completely transformed and never goes back to what it was before. If by work, you mean that nothing is ever bought and sold in the temple ever again, because I promise you the next day it was all set up 
again. And we tend to think that the power and value of a thing is how long it lasts. But Jesus shows us that a moment of righteousness is holy and eternal, no matter how much it lasts in chronological time. The truth does not become a lie just because it is uncelebrated. Jesus wasn't reckless, but he took risks. His life was one big bet that God is who God is and God keeps God's promises. And that's why he told the truth out loud in word and deed, even and especially when it cost him. Now we praise God are not Jesus. <laughs> and we don't take the same risks that Jesus took. But we should have right expectations of what will happen if we follow Jesus faithfully. And that means at times we will be acting faithfully in ways that will be uncomfortable and controversial and challenging and may even appear unfaithful. If we are following Jesus, then at times the spirit of Jesus will lead, lead us to do things that feel and are risky. Because we are coming alive in Christ by the grace of Jesus. We are growing. We are being made new. And change and growth are necessary. But change, even faithful change, is hard and it's challenging. And growth is risky. And sometimes, maybe even all the time, it hurts. And asking God for new life means we have to unclench our hands and let go of our old life. And some things are easy to let go of. And some things are good, and we can't believe anything could ever be better. Read the Bible, and you'll see faith is work. I love that Jaron started with that story of Abraham. This kernel of our faith begins in a moment when God asks somebody to take a huge risk. So today, I'm going to share with you one way the session of our church the elders and I have discerned that God is calling us to take a risk. And I want to invite us all to take a deep breath, which I had written down even before Chardet led the prayers of the people. And just listen. I know we're going to talk afterwards and as often as is necessary in the days to come. And know that whatever you're feeling is okay. And we'll get through it together. The session and I have decided that Jesus is calling us, have discerned that Jesus has called us to take a great risk. And like Jesus starting in the temple, it's a change that we are making right here in the heart of our sacred space, in this very beautiful sanctuary, in these prayer-soaked walls. I remember coming here 15 years ago. I've been the temporary pastor of the Grove for 15 years. <laughs> Maybe I'll be permanent someday. <laughs> um, I remember coming here at night 15 years ago, and, they, and David Hicks took me on a tour of the facility, and he brought me into this space, and the first thing I noticed was that stained glass window. And I loved it. I loved the colors of it, and I loved the image of Jesus cradling and protecting this little lamb. And I spend a lot of time in the sanctuary when you aren't here, um, after school programs and vacation Bible schools and baby song circles. And we come right, we clear off this platform and we come right up here on this platform and we sing and we teach about Jesus. And the kids are always fascinated by that window and they always ask about it. And I always point their attention to the lamb. I always tell them that the lamb has a name and it's a secret and I'll whisper it in their ears. And then I lean down and I whisper their own name in their ears. 
I want you to look at that, that window and see that Jesus is holding you tenderly in his arms and saying, back off to anybody who would ever hurt you. I love this window. And that's what I saw when I first saw this window. And I know the hearts of the people who conceived it and sacrificed to pay for it. And for all the reasons that Wes shared with the kids in the children's sermon, we need to see something new when we look there. We need to see Jesus who looks like the real Jesus who walked among us on earth. We are, by the power of God, a diverse community of believers. And that Jesus is a sacred image, but it looks like some of us, but not all of us. And it does not represent our shared humanity. So we need to not destroy that window, not at all, but transform him since he can't represent all of us, so that he can represent his own particular, uniquely salvific, historical humanity, so that we can all gaze together at a Savior who is like us and unlike us. So most of this image is going to be preserved exactly as it is. But the, the hue of Jesus's skin and the shape of his face and hair will be altered to conform more closely to the historical Jesus, like the message in Revelation 1:14, that his hair looks like wool and the texture of his skin is burnished bronze. And in this era of increased anti-Semitism and Islamophobia, when our children see a person of Middle Eastern descent, their thought can be that person looks like Jesus and not that person looks like a terrorist. So we have been gifted, we have been gifted the services of an award-winning local artist and pastor who is going to work with the beautiful image that we have to transform it so that it more closely and faithfully resembles the image of our Savior. We're changing this image not because it's bad, but because God has given us eyes to see something more beautiful and fitting for us in this season so that we can see and worship Jesus in spirit and in truth. And church, it will be uncomfortable and there will be real, sacred grief for those for generations who have loved and worshipped by that window. And it will stir some things up, some fear and some difficult conversations. And it is risky. And I need you to know that in my flesh, I'm a people pleaser through and through. <laughs> and I crave your approval. And I work hard to crave faithfulness to Jesus even more. But I want you to know no part of me is cavalier about causing anybody in this congregation pain or discomfort. But sometimes following Jesus doesn't soothe. Sometimes following Jesus disrupts the ways that we have been made comfortable with what never should have been. Sometimes following Jesus involves confronting the ways that what seems right and reasonable, even sacred to us, is hindering and holding back the kingdom of God from disrupting and interrupting in our space. Sometimes things have to be disrupted and changed even at the sacred center and in the chaos, and in the conflict, and in the disruption, a healing breaks out that is beyond our wildest imagination.